0: So that said, let's open our Bibles to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13, this evening we're going to go from verse 14 to verse 23. Mark chapter 13, verse 14 to 23. I'll start by reading verse 4 and then I'll go to our text. Mark chapter 13. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? Verse 14. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it may not happen in the winter. For those days will be a time of tribulation, such as has such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord has shortened those days, no life would have been saved. For but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And when And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Father God, thank you for your word and its clarity as well as its warning uh, to those that are reading it of the upcoming judgment that is to come for those who reject you. I pray as we go through this text that you give us a deeper understanding of what the future holds, because we know, Lord, that you are not a liar and that everything that you've revealed in scripture will one day come to pass. I pray for all of us as we look at this passage that will move us uh, to try to Be faithful, to continue to be faithful to your word, but also to try to go and share the gospel, knowing that what is to come. Lord, thank you for this time. your son's name, I pray. Amen. I know it's in our day and age, and it's been really in all of history, there's always groups of people that claim that the world is going to come to an end. Uh, I don't know if you know about the Mayan calendar. Uh, The Mayans were known as a very sophisticated group of people. Uh, they had this sophisticated way of, of calculating uh, the, the cosmos and really just like the times and dates. And people thought at the time that when, they, when the Mayans wrote this, made this calendar, that uh, that world was going to end at 2012. In fact, they even dated December 21st, 2012. And if you were alive at that time, there were a whole bunch of movies. I think there was even a movie called 2012. And it was, and it was basically the end of the world. And when December 21st happened... 2012, obviously, it did not happen because we are still here. Uh, we know that this is a normal part, not just an ancient civilization, but also in modern day, uh, several years ago. Uh, a famous man from Oakland. I'm from Oakland, so I'm really disappointed by this, but it's something we're famous for. A man named Harold Camping. You guys might know this guy. He's, over the years, have said that the world is going to come to an end, the world's going to come to an end. But in 2011, I remember I was in high school. Again, this is like Herald Camping and then mind destruction. People were thinking the world was going to come to an end. But uh, in high school, I remember I was, oh, I was in college. I just got out of high school and was in college, and had friends calling me like, "Hey, uh, is the world really coming to an end?" And uh, I thought it would be funny to troll them and just like not answer to, like my phone during that day, just to like, oh maybe the rapture did happen. Um, but Herald Camping was wrong, and when May 21st happened. 2011, uh, they asked him, what what, what happened? What was wrong with your prophecy? He literally said that he did his math wrong. Like, he didn't carry over the one for one of his numbers, and therefore, he was actually off by 100 days. So May 21st was moved to October 21st, 2011. And again, I was waiting. I was like, all right, my friends are going to call again. I'm just going to troll them again, just to mess with them. And it happened. October 21st, 2011, came and went. And it's easy to think that, okay, there's only the religious-type people or the people that are superstitious. These are the people that think that the world is going to come to an end. But again, atheists have their doomsday clock as well. They have their way of thinking, okay, if, this, if these events happen, that must mean the world is going to come to an end. I mean, I mean, every few decades, there's always some sort of someone coming out and saying that, oh, the science has proven that the world will end it this year, and then it doesn't happen. And I think because of the mix of the two, Sometimes people think of the opposite extreme that the world isn't going to end, and, and, and you know, there are people that claim that see, look at all of these failed prophecies, both from secular and from religious people. How can the world come to an end? But yet that's actually a reason why some people reject scripture. Second Peter chapter three, uh, Peter was defending the faith, and there were people that said second, chapter, uh, second Peter chapter three verse eight it says but do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So the reason why the Lord hasn't returned is because he's building up, giving you really grace for people to come to saving faith. And I think we don't want to get to any of the two extremes. We don't want to get to the extreme where we can use poor math to try to deduct when the end is coming. At the same time, we don't want to assume that the end of the world will not come to pass because we know the Bible does speak of a definitive end, that in this lifetime, it could be this lifetime, but on this world, at one point, at some point in the future, it will come to an end. Mark chapter 13, this is where we call the Olivet Discourse where Jesus is, is teaching his disciples. This is uh, one of the last, we're reaching towards the end, where he's about to go to the cross, and he wants to teach his disciples what's going to happen. And I think the disciples here understand that there's going to be three great events that's going to happen. It's because Jesus keeps talking about it. Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple. Jesus talks, talks about the return of the kingdom. And he even talks about his own death. And to some varying degrees, they, they, they understand bits and pieces here and there, But they kind of get the order wrong. They assume that maybe the temple will be destroyed first, and then maybe the the kingdom will come, and that's later on down the line, Jesus will will die, and then he will come back. But Jesus here is trying to shepherd them and teach them what's going to happen, and how would they know when the end is going to look like? When we look at this section here, Jesus gives us a definitive, like really definitive answer of when. The end is going to happen. What does it look like? So for our outline this evening, how do we know that this is the end? That's why I began by reading from verse 4. Tell us when these things will be, and what will the sign when all of these things are going to be fulfilled? So I'm going to try to answer that question here by going through the text. So the first scene, we'll call this the desolation. The desolation. Remember, leading up to this passage, Jesus said that there's going to be nations rising against nations and there's going to be calamity with, with earthquakes and from different um, famines and just all of this chaos in the world. But these things are just the beginning of birth pains. These are just beginning of birth pains. And now, when we get to this point, this is the definitive marker. There could be ups and downs, it could be moments where and it gets closer and closer. But at this point, this is the definitive marker to let, to let everyone know that this is what's going to happen. And when this happens, this is how you know we're reaching the very end. Jesus said, But when you see the abomination of desolation, standing where it should be, standing where it should not be, let the reader understand. So Jesus here is speaking of some sort of future time here. He's speaking, he's letting them know that in the future this is what's going to look like. And the world will seem like it's falling apart and and things seem to be not going well. And Jesus is telling them that when you look forward to this time, this is what's going to be. You notice in these big words it says abomination of desolation. Uh, the reason why they're in big word font is not because Jesus is yelling this part in the middle of the sentence, but it's a, it's a reference to the Old Testament. This is supposed to be something that the, the audience or the readers uh, of his disciples as well as the readers should, should at least have heard of. It should not be new to them when he's talking about this abomination of desolation. It says that when he's standing there, should not be. And it's interesting that Jesus said, and let the reader understand, which different commentaries have different views on this. Some people think that this is Jesus actually saying this, and in the NASB and I think the LSB as well, it doesn't have as red font, which implies that Mark and Matthew as well, the cross-reference here, uh, it's like the editor's note, like Matthew saying, he's trying to let, make sure the reader understands. Or it could be Jesus actually saying this. That's the other view that Jesus is teaching them. And also he tells them, "Let the reader understand." Uh, So depending on where you lean, I think both of them has has a sense that you have to at least understand what this abomination desolation is about. Uh, Whether you are, if you hold to the view that Jesus actually said this, that means he's implying that the reader, meaning reader of the Old Testament, should understand this. Or if you think that Mark or Matthew was inspired the Holy Spirit to put this in there that means that you need to know that Jesus is speaking to the reader. He knows that down the line, scripture is going to be written down, and he wants the people to understand what is going to happen. Whichever view you hold, uh, you need to at least understand what the abomination of desolation is. So I'm going to try my best to explain what this is, uh, and I don't usually do this, but as you, I want to ask you guys to turn to Daniel chapter 9. And as you're doing so, I'm going to put this thing up on the screen as a kind of like a, actually, maybe I'll maybe I won't put it up, okay, I'll put it up first and then I'll just move the screen away, okay, set up, okay, so turn to Matthew chapter 9, I'm sorry, Daniel chapter 9, all right, cool, I'm gonna leave it blank for now, okay, just so you won't be distracted, so Daniel chapter 9, this is the book uh, some of you guys are familiar with this book, the first half of Daniel. It's really what a faithful saint looked like in, a t- in, a ter- in times of being exiled. Daniel and his friends were exiled uh, because of their sin. Because of, not, not specifically their own sin, but the nation has failed to obey the Lord. They failed to be faithful to the Lord. And because uh, they've stored up enough wrath, God cursed them. And one of the cursings for the Israelites is that they're going to be removed from Israel by some sort of foreign enemy, in this case is Babylon, and they're supposed to be there for a certain amount of time. And afterwards, they'll be brought back into the, the promised land. So in Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 to 27, we begin to see this vision that Daniel gets. Daniel is reading the book of Jeremiah, and in, in the book of Jeremiah it says that Israel will go into captivity, and then they're going to be there for a certain amount of time, and they're going to be brought back. So So Daniel gets, he reads this, and then he contemplates when are we supposed to return he doesn't know he knows from scripture that uh that he, they're supposed to go back but he doesn't know when but god gives him a vision of what's going to happen this is Jan- daniel chapter 9 verses 24 and not only does it give him a vision of, of their immediate uh of when israel is going to return but also what the future is going to hold so you notice Jan- daniel chapter 9 verse 24 it said 70 weeks has been decreed for your people and your holy city To finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from issuing of a decree to restore or rebuild Jerusalem until, until until the prince there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress." Then, after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war, desolation, and determination. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering and on the wing of abomination will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction one that's decreed is poured out on the two who makes desolate so this sounds very strange because talking about this four thing now i know in our bibles it has the thing 70 weeks and i i have to kind of help some maybe not I know I'll sound like Harold Camping here when I'm going to show you, okay? But don't trust me, I'm trying to argue from Scripture why this is actually the view that we hold. So, this is, now this looks like a crazy equation, okay? I am not Harold Camping, all right? So I know I'm from Oakland. We're not, that's the only thing we have in similar, similarities. But, okay. The reason why in, the, in your Bible it says 70 weeks is because in the Old Testament, there was a rule that they were supposed to abide called the Year of Jubilee. Do you know what that is? You guys can actually participate. Year of Jubilee, are you familiar with that? The year of jubilee is, you know the Sabbath? The Sabbath is like you work for six days and the seventh day you rest. Well, for the Israelites, not only do they have to abide by that rule, there's also this thing called the year of jubilee, where after six years of work, the seventh year, they're supposed to rest. The whole land is supposed to rest. And God was going to provide them on that sixth year toward the very end a tremendous amount of food that they're able to survive for the entire year. Um, And it's supposed to be a way to show, not not only for this, the... Like fix allowing the, the, the land to rest, which is what it's supposed to be, so that they can keep growing uh, vegetation afterwards. But it's supposed to show the world that you cannot, because of their faithfulness to the Lord, the Lord will still bless them, even though they're doing absolutely nothing. They're supposed to keep depending on the Lord, and the Lord will provide for all their sustenance. Now, that was a command in the Old Testament that the Israelites choose not to do. And every single time that they fail to do it, that's uh, they, uh, the Lord has judged them, and actually that's, probably, that's exactly why they were exiled. Part of the reason why they are exiled is because they did not uh, honor the Lord in, in the Sabbath or in, the, in terms of the year of Jubilee, because so that's why this 70 weeks idea c- uh, comes from. But if you look at a cross-reference on your Bible, some of your Bibles will say 70 weeks, and the word weeks here is a unit of seven. So that's why I have this box here. So when you think of s- the weeks here, literally in the Hebrew... It's 70 units of seven. And the seven here, the seven here, is not speaking of literal weeks. The reason why, I don't know, I think I sometimes wish that our English translator could translate this weeks instead of weeks to just, instead of weeks to just call it like 70, 70 sets, like units of seven or units of seven. Because I think that's literally what it's saying. Um, so when it's saying 70 units of seven, it's not saying literal weeks that makes sense and we have this in English as well when we say I'll be back in a minute we're not literally back in a minute we see when we say we're back we'll be back in a minute what we mean is that we'll be back in an undisclosed amount of time (laughs) at some point I will return right that's what we say we I'll be back in a minute Um, this is the same idea here in the Hebrew mind when they see 70 units of seven they know that's actually meaning 70 units times seven which is where the idea of years come from so, are you guys following with me in terms of the numbers? Because this is like the important thing. Again, I'm not Harold Camping here, but I'm just trying to explain. You see verses here on the text here. So, verse 24 says there's 70 let's see units of seven has been decreed. And you'll see the first one was the seven by, of seven. So, that's in verse 25. 75 in the middle. It said, until Messiah the prince, there will be seven weeks. And then you notice this word and, and then 62 weeks. So, you'll see this is seven of seven here, and then another unit, that's why there's an and here. So it's connecting basically the same that there's two events. There's gonna be one event which is seven units of seven and then 62 of seven weeks, or seven units. Both of these we know are actually years because of how everything connects. When we look at this first unit here, all of this is actually fulfilled in uh, in the Old Test in, in, in within the Old Test in within the context of the Old Testament, because the end of the Old Testament actually ends when Nehemiah gets a decree to go and rebuild the temple. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, you know, this is, they're stuck in Babylon. Nehemiah gets this basically a call from God to go and check uh, the old the, the ruins of Israel, the Jerusalem, the temple. He goes and he gets super depressed. He goes back. He tells the um, he tells the king of Babylon that my he was, like, depressed, and then, he was, like, what do you need? He's, like, oh, my, my, my home is destroyed, and the, ki- the king of Babylon gives him a decree, like, you can go back and rebuild the temple, but you just need to come back. And he does that, and this is the event. And, and from the year when Daniel sees this vision until the end of the Old Testament was 49 years. From the moment when Daniel gets this vision to the end of the Old Testament, that is uh, this part right here, seven units of seven. Now, when we move a little bit forward, that's why there's an and, there is 62 units of seven. We see that in seven weeks and 62 weeks or 62 units of seven. This is speaking of from the old, time of the Old Testament ends all the way until Mark chapter 13. It's a passion week. So this is why it says like here, like this, this first event happened and this other event happens. So all of these things, you would say, is like it leads all the way to where we are now in Mark chapter 13, or Matthew 22, basically Passion Week. And you'll notice in the text, as it continues on, in verse 26, is that Then after 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. That means that there's, after this event, this is going to happen. So, why does it equal to 490 here? Is because 70 units of 70, that's you know, 70 times 7, that equals to this number. So there is, seems to be in the text that there's like a break here because later on, when it goes down, in verse 27 it said, and he'll make a firm covenant with, with, uh, with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. So this seven unit here, one unit of seven, this is the seven-year tribulation, uh, and he said, in the middle—that's why verse 27. This is when the 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 abomination desolation will happen. Does that make sense? Is that clear? You guys can totally ask questions. It won't—you you, won't—you know—the recording won't hear you, but I can hear, you, so it's okay. But again, it's like almost like Sunday school. Okay. So does that make sense? How we get this idea of the 70 weeks of Daniel? So from in the—and this is actually uh, connected to even the things that's stated in the New Testament as well. Uh, if you read Revelations. Uh, Six to 19. Everything here is actually portrayed out in the ways. It, like in the book of Daniel, you just kind of see like general big picture, and then when you get to book of Revelation, it details out exactly what's going to happen. So the middle here is uh, the, the the abomination of desolation that Jesus is talking about. Now there's going to be a question. I'm sure some of you are thinking, "What? Where's the rapture?" I believe that the rapture happens right here, according to Scripture, right before the seven-year tribulation. And the reason why that is, you could kind of flip back to Mark if you like, um, uh, but you know, if you don't, that's okay too. But Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he gives this, i to write that sound, you want to take references here, First Corinthians 15, uh, chapters, chapter 15, for 51, 52, Paul writes, behold, I tell you a mystery, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. So Paul is talking about this resurrection. This one day, there's going to be this event that happens that will that will bring uh, a new body, in, which I believe is the rapture here. And Second Thessalonians as well. Second uh, Thessalonians. Sorry, Second Thessalonians. Second, this Oh sorry, first Thessalonians. First Thessalonians four, right, this first Thessalonians four. We'll do 15 to 18. Now in this context, First Thessalonians 4, 15, 18, the, the church of Thessalonica was wondering, did the rapture happen? Did Christ return? Did we miss it? And Paul here is trying to assure them that that's not the case. Because Paul's writing It's like if he if he is a, if he is in rapture that means like he probably wasn't apostate but he was still around he's trying to encourage the Thessalonians that the end has not happened yet. First Thessalonians chapter four verse fifteen says, "For this we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the trumpet of God, and the dead is, uh, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So remember how last week I said, how do we know when Christ's returns is going to be this gospel that everyone's going to hear the gospel before it happens? That so This is that event. There's going to be some sort of a loud shout, there's some trumpet, all the believers ascend. And then the people will know just even by that, that like the Bible is true. But yet a lot of people reject it. Verse 17, but we who are alive and remain will be caught up. That's the word we'll get the the, the word rapture is actually a Latin word, it's not a Greek word, but that's just that you're being quickly snatched, it's a very violent word being s- like brought up into the air. Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we, and so we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, now we can go back to Mark chapter 18. So uh, the reason why our church, and I think the Bible, holds to a pre-tribulation rapture, because... This, not only the First Corinthians passage, First Thessalonians passage, but in Revelation chapter 3, uh, John himself, when, uh, when, he was ta- when he's warning, of the, warning the believers of what is to come, uh, uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, this is Jesus speaking here, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I'm coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. So when we connect all of these verses together. It seems to be that in that before the rapture, I mean before the tribulation, the rapture is going to happen. Uh, and John's writing that, yeah, God will spare the elect. Those that are believers, those are individuals that are going to be spared from the wrath that is to come. So that's important because, again, the middle of this is the is a, Is the abomination of desolation. So the rapture happens, and there's going to be this seven-year period. First three and a half years is called the tribulation. This is things are things get bad, but it's not that. It gets worse later, but basically it's like the ascension of the Antichrist, and he's going to make this. He's like a political leader. He's going to be a military guy, and he's going to he's going to give this temporary peace to the world. And at the three-and-a-half-year mark, he's going to basically desecrate the temple. He's not going to go in Washington, D.C., or um, Buckingham Palace, or, uh, or Beijing, or anything like that. This, he's going to go into the temple in Jerusalem, which implies that it's going to be rebuilt. He's going to be in there, and he's going to do something that's just going to cause everyone— basically, he's just trying to offend everyone with what, what he's going to do. Uh, he's going to offer some sacrifices uh, that's not that he was not supposed to do, and he's basically going to declare himself— as God. He's going to try to deceive everyone. That's what the abomination of desolation is. So uh, I guess that's enough for this. But does this make sense so far? Generally? Okay, good, because I, I spent a lot of time working on this. I'm glad it worked out. <laughs> um, now moving, going back, and I think this is important context so you understand what, what's going on when Jesus is saying that the abomination desolation. So he's saying that this event is going to happen, and that's how you know. And, so the question is like, if the rapture has already happened, and then that means there's, like, the New Testament uh, church is all gone, then who's left? That means there's some people, even when the first in the tribulation period, that come to saving faith. They might, might maybe, some people saw the rapture and like, oh man, the Bible was real. Like maybe you see some loved one disappear in front of them, and then you snatch up into the air, and they come to saving faith. Uh, but it seems like uh, there are people that are saved, and the focus is here. In, in, when it comes to abomination and desolation, it's, it's centered around Israel. Uh, I know that's, they're always on the news, like, especially in the last year or so with all the you know, wars and stuff like that. But by then, at that point, they are really going to be the center of everything. So I said, like when this happens, that's how you know the end is, is coming. Um, in the end of the book of Daniel, it says that this is the end of the age. When all of this happens, this is, this is how you know that this is the very end. So that's the very first uh, thing that we know this is how we know that the end is coming our first point is the desolation the desolation abomination is going to happen the rapture is going to happen three and a half year of fake peace this antichrist figure is going to try to draw everyone to him he's going to start killing a whole bunch of christians and jews especially um, he makes this false peace with israel then he's going to betray them and there's going to be the slaughter all over and every believer at that time is going to go through a very hard time uh, but yet the Lord tells them, explains what this looks like, which gets, leads to our second point, the tribulation. The tribulation. Uh, look at verse, the end of verse 14. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains, and the ones who is in the housetop must not go down or to go get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his garment, but woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it, uh, it may not happen in the winter. Um, For in those days, such has not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God has created until now and never will. So he begins by saying this is going to be in Judea. I mean, this word flee here is, is where we get the word fugitive. Like you need to run. And which is very different from most of what the New Testament talks about. Usually for believers in the New Testament time, including us, we're not called to flee. We're called to stand firm to be bold and courageous to go and declare the gospel, but at this day and this time in the future, they're called to run, to flee, to go to the mountains. And that, and again, this is focused on Judea. This doesn't mean that the event only happens in Judea, to in Judea. It's kind of this is, in the book of Revelation. It's a, it's a global catastrophe, but the focus is here on Judea because that's where everything is. That's where the Antichrist is. That's like the main focus. All eyes are on there if they're not hiding. And, you know, just we understand this, right? Whenever there's an earthquake, sometimes they'll focus on, like, one building that's collapsed. But we understand that around, there's other places that are destroyed. But here, this is a global calamity, and their focus here is on the promised land. So they're called to flee to the mountains, and they're called to run. Again, this is the only one of the few places in Scripture where Jesus commands the people to flee for their lives, this is like preparation. They're called to be ready, to be on guard, and when that happens, they need to not turn back. Verse 15, and the one who's in the housetop must not go down and or, uh, or go in to get anything out of his house. In the, uh, in the New Testament time, in the Old Testament as well, usually uh, the first floor is like kind of vacated, or I guess it's not really vacant, but it's more like they have the roof that they can get to, and that's like relatively speaking the safest place in the house, and that's what they're saying. If you're if, if you see all this happen, I mean, the safest place, relatively speaking, is just on top of your house. And the idea here is that you have to escape. You need to try to run. Verse 16, and then one who is in the field must not turn back to get his garment. In other words, flee. Do not, do not turn back. To, if you know that the mountain's on that way and your favorite coat is over there, just run because uh, like, the coat is not going to do anything for you. You need to get out of there. And then verse 17, but woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. Now, we know that uh, people that are pregnant, they obviously can't, they're not as mobile, and especially those who are nursing babies, it's going to be hard to move because babies cry and baby needs to feed. Uh, so this is like a warning that, not to say don't be pregnant, but in those days, especially the time with those those remnants of believers, it would be good. It's not to say that they can't get pregnant, it's just that it would be harder for them. Again, this is Jesus sensitive to those believers. And why are these ladies, I mean, why is Jesus saying this? Because... In and Hosea, in Hosea chapter 13 makes this prophecy as well about the future, and that in that time when everything goes horribly wrong, if those ladies and babies would get caught, those babies would basically would be killed. Uh, so in the time where all these Christians are being killed in the Middle East, when they see this event happen, they're all called to run, flee. All the Jewish people that are believers, they're called to just get out of there if they want to survive. Uh, and then verse 18, but pray that it will not happen in the winter. Uh, we understand this as well that 's just hard to travel. I mean there's the whole Ukraine war in Russia like whenever there is winter time, which is now, the war kind of stops because cars and planes and people can't really move you can 't really beat mother nature in that way so people will be trapped. But yet it's interesting that Jesus isn't saying here again he 's not saying to stand there and stay there and die, but run for their lives and we will see if, if okay here's the hero of like a if you want to know what's, what's going to happen in the book of Revelation, Adult 2 is going to teach that next quarter. They're going to go through all the details, so I'm going to plug that. It's by God's providence. It just so happens that, uh, that this passage in Revelation Sunday School is coming up. So if you want to know more about what that is like, go to Bill's class in a few weeks, because they're going to go through the book of Revelation. Uh, but yeah, they're called to run. It's going to be a very de- devastating time, but they're called to run for their lives. They have to be ready. Now, again, just drawing some principle for our life, it's a question for us, like, are we ready? Because if this event happens, obviously the rapture is going to happen for us. But just in general, as Christians, we should always be ready for what is to come. We know that God's word is going to happen. We know that everything that is written is going to be true, and it's going to happen the way it's supposed to. But as believers, I think sometimes we are so focused on the things of the world that we're not prepared for the end. And, I'm not, and again, I'm not talking about the end time necessarily if you're a believer because you know that the rapture is going to happen but I think some people here, they're just not ready in terms of just being having like an eternal mindset, to think about beyond the moment, be, think about beyond just your work, but to go and tell other people about Jesus. You and I know that God's word is true, and this event here, all this thing that's going to happen at the end, is really God's pouring out his wrath on those that are sinners. That Our holy God hates sin, and when at this point in history, and, and, and really down the line, there's going to be no sin that's going to go unpunished. Whether believers are, their sin's going to be punished because Jesus took the punishment for them. But for non-believers, it should make us, it should move us to be more mindful that these people who do not know Christ, we want to warn them of the wrath that is to come. Going back to the text, it said, verse 19, for those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. This is saying that this event in history is going to be so bad that, I mean, this is the worst of the worst. Like, it, it's, it's nothing that uh, Hollywood could portray. It's nothing that doomsday cults can conjure up. But when it happens, it's going to be so bad that this will this, this is a one-time event here in, 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 in redemptive history that something like this is going to happen. Again, this is all in a future event. This is why we hold to... a. A future view of the end times that this hasn't happened yet because if you look at how bad the world is it's not as bad as the way the bible describes it there are things in the world that are bad like we know things like world war ii there's different wars all over the world it's worse than anything that any sinner can possibly do on their own it's worse than any disease because this is god enacting his wrath onto the world and everyone will know that this is uh, god's doing but yet they still would not repent, which is why it's so horrifying. When you look at this from Revelation 19, there's people that can see this happen and still think to themselves, I'm going to hide, and I'm just going to hide. and just, uh, just, he's, They're even asking God, calling the, the, you know, the name of God to just put the mountain over them as if that's going to keep them from God's wrath. And then again, we can see the depravity of man, that even though they can see God acting on, in the whole world, that people still would not repent. Verse 20. And unless the Lord shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. There's an element of God's grace here. He's speaking of the elect, and the word elect here is the same word that's used to describe New Testament believers. But in the context of this text as well as the book of Revelation is speaking of the remnant, the Jewish remnant, the 144,000 Jews from all the tribes when they come to saving faith. This is the elect that they're talking about. Those people will be saved. Now, do I think that other believers from all over are going to come back and be are, are, you know, spared? I think so. I think there's going to be more than just the Jews that survive, but there are going to be other Christians. But the focus here again is in the Middle East. In that context, 144,000 will be spared. And it says, and those he chose, he will shorten the days. And again, if God just kept this calamity going, everyone in all the world will be, uh, it'll be, it'll be like the extinction event. But he shortened it. Uh, this word "shorten" is that word for amputate. He shortened this time in uh, to just seven years. Um, and again, we know that seven years of God's destruction may not seem much, but pain makes time move slower. So if you just imagine, just I know some of you guys are probably go to the gym. You think doing a plank seems like an eternity, or like so you're like you know doing some sort of hold position might seem like a long time, but just imagine seconds after seconds of seconds of just seeing all this calamity happen for so whether you're starving or running or or just being exhausted or thirst or whatever it may be that's how these people are going to experience that's the life that they're going to have and it's going to be very devastating for all of them but by god's grace he shortened it to only seven years that people are this place going to destroy everything but the elect are going to be spared Which leads to our last point. We saw the desolation. This is when the Antichrist will come. he will desecrate the temple. He'll try to make himself as as the Messiah. And we see this tribulation period, uh, really the great tribulation in the last three and a half years. And then we'll see the imitations, the, the imitation. Notice in verse 21, it says, And then, if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is here, do not believe them. This word behold here, it's again, it's like, look. This idea of just, it's this excitement. And I would, I would imagine that when all of this is happening, there's going to be people that will just come out and just claim, look, I'm the Messiah. No, I'm the Messiah. And they're going to try and do all these things. And it even seems that they could do supernatural things and people will believe them. But some, they elect here, said do not believe them. Again, there's, this implies that they're going to try to persuade everyone. uh, But the Antichrist cannot actually draw believers. The Antichrist cannot influence believers because Jesus said, my sheep will know my voice. And you can understand why even non-believers will do this, why they'll bow down to all of these different false teachers, is because they're desperate. They're desperate, but the people that are believers, that's why I think in verse 14 it says, let the reader understand. He's speaking to the readers here, which implies that Again, uh, non believers uh, will not believe, uh, but believers, they'll hear, they'll see all of these false prophets rising and false teachers and prophets, and they will not believe. Verse 22 For false Christ and false prophets will rise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, to elect. Again, that is their purpose. These false teachers are going to try their best, a last-ditch uh, effort to try to draw people away from the Lord. I believe these are all the different antichrists. These are all the demonic leaders that are trying to get people to like, to turn away from the Lord. But is that, if possible, the elect. Again, this is They are going to attempt to try even tempt the elect, but it's not going to work. Uh, Christians are the target of the devil, but they will not succeed. And then... Verse 23, but as for you, see, I have told you, every, told you everything Advance. This is, again, Jesus is speaking to the disciples and uh, letting them know that this is all of this, this stuff is going to happen. Now, what are we supposed to do with this? What are we supposed to do with this? And like, no, because usually when we look at these future events, we sometimes think to ourselves, well, hopefully that doesn't happen in my lifetime. Uh, and, you know, uh, we have this tension in our mind because it's, Sometimes we want to stay here because we want to minister and win people to Christ. And, but, of course, being with Christ is always better. So there is always going to be that tension that we have. But what are we supposed to do with a text like this? So we're going to have these three points of application. Three points of application for us, looking at all of this. First is this, that God is coming. God is coming. Uh, this is actually how the, book of Re- the Bible ends. The Bible ends by calling people to repentance. Telling people that this is you still have time, you need to. If if, if there's still a moment that you have, turn to Christ. It says in verse 20, the last two verses of the Bible, He who testified to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly, amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all, amen. Everything is going to happen according to God's plan, but the Lord is coming, and that is something that should motivate us. To live in a life that's obedient to Him, but also should motivate us to go and tell other people about Christ, which is our second application point. The first is that God is coming, and not only that He's coming, but He's He's going to judge the wicked. I think sometimes we look at the world, we see how bad things are; things are never going to work well. But we know that God is going to judge the wicked, and God is going to have His day. On that's why it's called the Day of the Lord. He's going to have His day; He's going to pour out His wrath on those who reject him all of the people that have committed so many sins and atrocities they will be judged by the lord and the full wrath of god will be upon them but again that's should motivate to our second application point is that we should go and tell other people about jesus we should go and tell other people about jesus you know i know when it comes to the end time things if you have a non-believer friend to ask you about what's well, this really going to happen is it really going to be a rapture is it really going to uh, be the seven year tribulation it can be very, it, it, we could be tempted to be ashamed or embarrassed of things as revealed. I think part of it is just because of the way the media and, you know, Hollywood is able to betray the end times. is so goofy and wonky that sometimes it, it's hard to take end time things seriously. But if we're embarrassed about God's word, we're really embarrassed about what Jesus said. You know, these are all words of Christ. If you have a red letter Bible, you look at the book of Revelation, a lot of it is red, because these are things that Jesus is saying and in this particular passage in Mark chapter 13 or if you look at the re- cross references in Matthew and Luke Jesus is telling you what the end is going to be like so we need to take it seriously and we need to and knowing that this is going to happen it again should motivate us to go tell people about Christ because we don't want even non-believers to go through this i mean there's a reason why in the old testament Yahweh is described as as some as a god that doesn't desire the wicked to perish. And we should have that same heart. Knowing that there's a wrath that is to come, we should go and tell people that Christ, uh, the, the, the Christ is returning and God's wrath is waiting for them if they don't repent. So it should motivate us to go tell other people about Christ. Whenever we look at these type of passages about the future, it should motivate us now to go and evangelize to the lost. Because if you try to imagine the stuff that Jesus is saying, just imagine what it's like if it's your own brother and your sister. Do you want your brother and sister to go through something like this? If Christ was to return right now, that means that they're going to go through the seven-year tribulation, right? If it's going to go through all of that. Do you want your family to go through all of this calamity? If, that's, if you really truly love them, you should want to compel them to believe in Christ. Not only just like the earthly type things, but we understand that there is a doctrine of hell. And if we care about our loved ones, if we truly say we love them, then we should be willing to go and warn them of the wrath that is to come. So we should know that God is coming and we should tell other people about Christ. And lastly, and this should be encouragement for us, that the elect are always safe in the hands of God. The elect are always safe in the hands of God. Notice in this, in, in this section here that, that God was going to spare the elect. I mean, they're going to be protected, that the revelation, the tribulation time is going to be cut in half because of those that are his elect, his people. And usually when we think about the attributes of God in the scriptures, we, we look to like the Old Testament and we say, okay, there are things that Christ has done or things that uh, who God is, and we kind of say if, he, if he's faithful back then, that he'll be faithful to us now. And That is absolutely true. That is absolutely true we see the loving kindness of the Lord then, and we have the you know, Hebrews 11 talk about the halls of faith, and we look at their lives, we see God's faithfulness to them, then, for, then certainly he's going to be faithful to us. He's going to help us endure in our life. That's why we have this cloud of witnesses, right, Hebrews chapter 12, we look to not just the individual, but how God was faithful to these individuals. And often we look back and we see God's uh, faithfulness to us in the present. But this is one of those in- unique instances and not really all the prophecies, where we can look forward and kind of draw God's character back into our time. Meaning like if God is faithful to us in the past, we can also look at God's faithfulness in the future and know that we can have assurance, you know, that God will, will, will be with us until the very end. And God will sustain us through hardship. And I think there's a reason why Jesus doesn't, in this whole chapter so far, that Jesus doesn't give a definitive time. He's not like the Mayans or Harold Camping. He's not giving this definitive time because it's a truth that goes throughout all the way until you know to the end of time. But God's word, all of God's word will not be done away with. So we can know that, like, okay, these principles, these all these calamities, and how God's still faithful to those elect is going to be faithful to us as well. It may not be as severe as this event that, that God talks about, but God is still faithful to sustain us and to keep us. This is why, in, in in the, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches, you can do nothing. Aside from me, you can do nothing, and that includes our own salvation. It is only by God holding on to us that we will make it to the very end. Jude uh, tell, uh, says this at the very end, uh, Jude verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory majesty dominion and authority before all time and now and forever amen if God can sustain the elect in the future through all of this calamity then we know that God will sustain us in our time as well by God's grace he sustained those in the past he'll sustain some individuals in the future and he'll sustain us in the present and that's what we get That's where we find our joy and our assurance. You might be struggling with sin. You might be struggling with different things. But remember, in Romans chapter 8, it gives us this assurance that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us, all, how will he not also, uh, also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justified. Who is the one who condemns Christ? Is he, uh, Christ Jesus is he who died? Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as is written, for your sake we are being put to death. All the day long we are, being, we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor power nor heights nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is where we get assurance. What keeps us in the faith now and forever is the love of God. And when we look at this, we see how God spared and protect those elect. He is doing that now in the present uh, and protecting and giving us assurance in our faith now. So when we look at this, the takeaway should be that we know that Christ is coming. We should go tell other people about Christ, but also assurance that the elect are always safe in the arms of our Savior. That's how I think when we look at these texts, we know that the Lord is coming, and it's a good thing that he comes, because then that means we can finally be with him, and our faith will become sight. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Lord God, thank you for your word, and just helping us see what the future is going to be. And Lord, although this is a great calamity and great tribulations, we know that it is rightfully so because of how wicked uh, people on earth really are. And I pray for us as believers that we don't take your word for granted, that we know that as believers that when the tribulation comes, that we will be spared from it. But Lord, knowing that, may it motivate us to live holy lives to go and tell other people about your son, that we warn them of the wrath that is to come. And Lord, come quickly. We long to be with you, to see your face, and to be able to dwell with you with everlasting joy. Lord, thank you for your word. And revealing to us what you have in store for all of us, Lord, in your son's name. I pray, Amen. All right. Um, if you have any other questions about end times, please let me know. I know that that flow chart or no, that little drawing I did might, if it's illegible, hopefully this makes sense. I was trying to figure out a way to like communicate that, and I don't usually use you know technology when I preach, but. I couldn't articulate as well, so I thought maybe I'll just show it to you what it might look like. So, if you have any end-time questions, please feel free to let me know, and uh, even not just end-time things as well, but just you know, Bible questions. I'm here. For.